I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 16, but we will be looking in the sermon specifically just at verse 15. We're trying to savor these verses, and if we do our job and don't get in the way of God's word, hopefully you will see why we are doing that. So brothers and sisters, let me read for you now Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and I remind you that what we are about to hear read is the word of Almighty God, so let us listen and receive it as such. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word teaches us that the only way we can keep our way pure before you is by guarding it according to your word. And so we pray that you would empower us now to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander from your commandments, but instead may we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. For you are our blessed Lord. Teach us your statutes so that with our lips we might declare all the rules of your mouth. And may we delight in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we continue our way through the sermon or epistle or exhortation to the Hebrews, we see that the message of the author is laser-focused, isn't it? We just see it coming up again and again and again. And what is that message? That message is that Jesus, the Son of God who assumed a human nature and is ushered in the new covenant, is greater than anything that has come before him. Anything under the old covenant, all the priests, sacrifices, temples, kings, prophets, ceremonies, laws, whatever they may be, Jesus is greater than anything that has come before him. And so in light of that truth, the author is also relentlessly exhorting these Hebrew Christians to whom he's writing to hold fast to Christ. Because here's their temptation. They're being persecuted. They're suffering trials and temptations. And in the midst of that, they're being tempted to abandon Christ, to abandon the church and go back to life under Moses so that that persecution and suffering and those trials will end. And so the author tells them over and over and over again, as he does in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, pay much closer attention to Jesus. Or again in Hebrews 2.1, don't drift away from Jesus. 
Or as he does in Hebrews 2 verse 3, don't neglect Jesus. But rather in Hebrews 3 1, he says, consider Jesus. Or as he says again in Hebrews 3 6, hold fast to Jesus and boast in Jesus. Or as we've heard most recently in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11, strive to enter into Jesus who is your rest. And so he's reminding them of this again and again. And as we've moved now to this new section of the book of Hebrews, we see that the exact same thing is the case, isn't it? He's presenting them a new argument as to why Jesus, as high priest, is greater than any priest that has come before him under the old covenant. And so they should hold fast to this high priest rather than returning back to any of the Old Testament high priest, Old Covenant high priest. And what we saw as we looked at verse 14 of chapter 14 is that's introducing this whole idea. And the author talks about this all the way until the end of chapter 10. So it takes up the majority of this exhortation, the majority of this book, the majority of of this sermon. And so in these four, three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16, he's setting up this whole idea of Jesus as our great high priest for us. And here's what we saw last week in verse 14. Jesus is such a great and unique high priest, first of all, because he has ascended into the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. We saw that in Acts 1. Jesus rose from the dead, appears to his disciples, was teaching them for 40 days and then ascended into the heavens and a cloud came and now they don't see Jesus anymore. And what we saw that the author of Hebrews is teaching us there is that Jesus has now gone into the heavenly temple of which the earthly temple was just a type and a shadow. But this heavenly temple in which Jesus is now ministering, having offered himself as a sacrifice once for all for our sins, He has sat down at the Father's right hand because his work as high priest is done. He's still interceding for us, but his work is done. And he does this as one person who is truly God and truly man. That's why he reminds us that he's Jesus, the Son of God. And so this is what makes Jesus a great or unique high priest. But here's, here's the temptation that the author of the book of Hebrews knows his listeners are probably gonna fall prey to. All right, so you're telling us about this high and exalted, majestic, glorious Jesus who's ministering for us in this temple that we can't see. It's a heavenly temple. So how can we know now that he's going to have anything to do with us? We're earthly. We're mere mortals. We're sinful. We're frail. At least um, with our old covenant priests, we could see them. And you could look them in the face and tell them, hey, here's how I need you to be praying for me. And then I could see them disappear back behind the veil where they would pray for me. Or when I had a sin, I'd repent of it. And then they'd disappear behind the veil and offer the blood on the mercy seat. And I could know. But now you're saying all this is happening and I can't see it. And Jesus is so great and lofty and exalted. How can I know that he loves me? How can I know that he's concerned about what concerns me? How can I know these things? And so the author of the book of Hebrews wants to remove any misunderstanding, remove any temptation, any movement towards that lie that Jesus doesn't care about them or isn't moved by their concerns. And so what he does in verse 15 is he points out three truths about Jesus as our high priest 
that are meant to encourage them to understand that they might rightly know that Jesus cares deeply for them. Three essential truths that they might persevere and endure to the end, knowing that their great high priest cares so much for them, even now in his exalted, resurrected, glorified state. First of all, they need to understand that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. In other words, he's a compassionate high priest. We'll look at that together. Second of all, Jesus was a high priest in his earthly ministry who was tempted. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And then that's kind of the third point. Not kind of the third point. It is the third point. That Jesus, as our high priest, is a sinless high priest. He's sympathetic. He was tempted. And he is sinless. And brothers and sisters, as we hear this, it is my great prayer that we would be moved to understand how much Christ cares for us and is interceding for us and praying for us and is moved by all that moves us. And what great encouragement that should be for us to hide ourselves in him and turn to him all the days of our lives. So let's look first then at how Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. And I'm going to give you a little heads up here. This is the longest point. You're going to see me going for a while on this and go, oh my goodness, he has three points. How's he going to get through all three of them? Don't worry. The first point has three sub points, and I'll introduce those to you. And then the last two points go very quickly. All right, so don't think, man, he's got a 25-minute or so first point. This is going to be a 75-minute sermon. Don't worry about that. I don't want to exasperate you and think that that's what's going to happen here. But look at verse 15 with me again as we look at how Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now hopefully you noticed right out of the gate the author's use of the double negative. Did you catch the double negative? For we do not, there's the first negative, have a high priest who is unable, there's your second negative, to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And what he's trying to emphasize here by using a double negative, you know what happens when you have two negatives like this, it actually makes a positive. He's trying to emphasize something here. And what he's saying, as the Scottish theologian and pastor said, John Brown, the assertion is not, it is possible that he may sympathize. It's not just that he's able or capable to sympathize, but rather it is impossible that he should not. It's impossible for Jesus to not sympathize with you in your weaknesses. Author is bending over to make sure that we understand that and that his original audience understands that. Now here's the question. Why is Jesus able to sympathize with our weaknesses and be compassionate towards our weaknesses. How is that even possible when he's in this glorified, exalted state? And we are given three reasons at various places in the scriptures and in the book of Hebrews. Three reasons why Jesus is able to be sympathetic. First of all, because of Jesus' humanity. Think about this. We're going to dip our toe here into the great and glorious mystery of the incarnation. Don't sink all the way to the bottom because there is no bottom. Make sure you come up for air and worship, okay? But here's the reality of the incarnation. The divine person of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed a human nature in his incarnation. 
And the author of the book of Hebrews has already presented this idea to us. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. If your Bible is laid out like mine, you don't even have to turn a page. Since therefore the children, who are the children? That's you and me, share in flesh and blood. He himself, therefore since the children have a human nature, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He doesn't assume an angelic nature because he's not here to save the angels. Who's he here to save? But he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's why he takes on a human nature. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see the same idea if you go back just a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. And I think Chad convincingly argued several Sundays ago that that word source there should actually be uh, translated nature. What is that one nature that we share with Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and we who are sanctified? A human nature. And Jesus took this, he assumed this, the Son of God assumed this human nature so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and redeem us. But it's important that we understand he didn't just assume a fallen human nature. No, he assumed a unfallen human nature like Adam and Eve had back in the garden before the fall. They had an unfallen human nature. That's the nature that Jesus assumed. It was untouched by the fall. And so what you have then in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is one who is truly God and truly man Two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, in one person. And in these two natures, this one person did all that was necessary for our redemption. In his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension. And this all started with the Son's incarnation where he assumes an unfallen human nature. Now why is this so important? Why am I stressing this? This is so important because if the Son of God had not assumed a human nature. He couldn't be sympathetic towards us in this way. He couldn't be humanly sympathetic. Why? Because God is divine, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as such, they have no body, parts, or passions. That's what our confession says. That's what we believe. That's what the scriptures teach. God is spirit. And as such, he does not change. He is not moved by us. He is, $5 theological word of the day, impassable. He does not have passions. He does not change. And so he is incapable of being sympathetic in these ways because he never changes. And so this is why it's so important that the second divine person of the Trinity, the Son of God, assumes an unfallen human nature. And what do we see in the gospel accounts? Because he does that, he does change, doesn't he? He does have human emotion. He is moved by the things around him. We see him growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But here's the thing. Jesus, I want you to think about this. If that's not blowing your mind enough, 
Jesus took that crucified, resurrected, and glorified human nature, since he's now assumed it, with him when he passed through the heavens as our great high priest. In other words, I think sometimes we believe the lie that Jesus somehow stripped himself, that that light got pulled off of him as he went through the clouds or something, and now he's back in his purely divine state, and the human nature's been stripped away. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie. That human nature is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Now, why is that important? Why is that important if, for Jesus being a sympathetic high priest? Because what that means is that Jesus, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, is just as compassionate now in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father as he was here on earth. And aren't you moved? Even unbelievers are moved by the compassion of Jesus all throughout the gospel accounts. I mean, he is on the cross dying, stripped naked, most of his friends abandoning him. He's got the wrath of Almighty God being poured out on him for your sins and my sins. And what is he doing as that's happening? He's making arrangements for his mother. Looks to John and says, son, your mother, mother, your son. Or he's praying for those who are crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that that human nature that showed that kind of compassion is now at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is interceding for you, moved by you, compassionate towards you in this human way. And that's only possible if he truly assumed that human nature and still has that human nature, even as he sits at the Father's right hand. So first of all, Jesus is able to be sympathetic because he assumed an unfallen human nature. But second of all, Jesus is able to be sympathetic with us because he willingly took upon himself our weaknesses. Look at verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now remember, he didn't have to experience these weaknesses, right? Why do you and I experience weaknesses? Adam and Eve didn't experience weaknesses before the fall. Why do we experience weaknesses? Because in Adam, as our federal head, because he disobeyed God in the garden and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God told him not to, incurs guilt, that guilt is passed off to us. As our representative, our federal head, that guilt comes to us. And so we are conceived in sin. We come out of the womb with this fallen nature. We, we are conceived with this fallen human nature. And so when we get sick, and we get tempted, and we have pain, and we have loss, this is all because we, we deserve these things. You understand that, right, brothers and sisters? We deserve the curse of God for our sin and rebellion. That's why the curse happens in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve disobey God. But Jesus didn't assume a fallen human nature. He didn't have that original sin. Instead, he had an unfallen human nature. And so what that tells us when we see Jesus being hungry or when he's dying or when he experiences pain or loss or we see him weeping, it's because Jesus is voluntarily experiencing those things. He doesn't deserve those. He's not guilty like you and I are. 
And so he willingly, voluntarily says, even though I have an unfallen human nature, I will experience all of these infirmities. I will experience your fragility. I will experience your weaknesses. Why? So that he might be a compassionate and sympathetic high priest. So here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just understand a little bit of human suffering. Let me turn the tables on that. You actually understand a little bit of Jesus' human suffering. Because no human being suffered more than the Lord Jesus Christ. He voluntarily felt the, the, the weight of human weakness so that it almost broke him. Don't we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating out blood? He's on the brink. He's about to break. And if you and I were their brothers and sisters, we would have broke. Or we would have been like the disciples who were falling asleep. There's no way that we could have bore up the weight of the fullness of of human weakness that the curse and the fall requires. And yet Jesus did, and it didn't break him. And you see, that's the entire point of Isaiah 53. That Jesus is this man of sorrows and acquainted with guilt. He's felt the full weight of human misery and weakness. And so as a result, guess what? He understands. He understands your weakness and your suffering better than you do. Now, our culture doesn't like this. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, I've, I've uh, received quite a bit of training in Christian counseling. And one of the things that they tell you not to do, you guys know where I'm going with this already? Don't ever sit across from somebody and tell them what? I understand. Listen, a lot of you just whispered that because you already know this. I understand. Don't say that. Why? Because you don't completely perfectly understand. And our culture has just taken off and run with this so that now, if you're not the exact same gender as me, or the same race as me, or experienced the same sufferings that I have, had the same experiences, or come from the same socioeconomic background that I do, you cannot understand me. Do you hear that voice? Those voices in the culture? Do you, you get that message? Brothers and sisters, it is a crock. It is a lie. And guess what? If it's not a lie, you don't have a sympathetic high priest. You don't have a high priest that can understand. You want to know why? Jesus was a 33-year-old Jewish male who came from a poor family and a blue-collar upbringing. So moms this morning, Jesus was never a mom. Jesus was never a female. Jesus was never any other race than Jewish. So you don't have a high sympathetic priest, a sympathetic high priest, if you buy into that cultural lie. Let alone the fact that, so now I can't relate with you either. What happened to the unity that we have in being image bearers of God? Whatever differences there may be. So don't buy into that lie. I'm not saying that you can perfectly understand everybody's situation. That's not what I'm saying. But you can understand enough to come alongside and be compassionate and help them and love them. And we need to stop building up these walls because it's bad theology. And it has huge consequences in your understanding of how Jesus intercedes for you as your great high priest. Because he does understand. 
because he bore the fullness of human frailty and weakness in a way that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. It would drive us insane. And yet he did. Why? Not because he had to. For you and for me. So he can walk alongside of us and say, I understand, I've been there. And I endured and I can help you endure in the ways that you fail, I didn't. This is our great high priest. So he first of all assumed an unfallen human nature. He assumed all of our weaknesses, though he didn't have to, second of all. And thirdly, Jesus is able to be a sympathetic high priest because we are now united to him by the Holy Spirit. Think about this. We are united to Christ when that the Holy Spirit comes, regenerates us, gives us the gift of faith. We exercise that, and we're united to Christ by grace through faith in such a way that when something happens to you, Jesus says, it's happening to me. You say, what text do you have to back that up? How about Acts chapter 9, verse 4? You remember the story. Saul is bloodthirsty. He's on the war path, killing Christians. Why? Because he's zealous for the traditions of his father. And he is just going crazy here, overseeing the stoning of Stephen. And he's on his way to another city where he's heard some Christians are, and he's going to go have them imprisoned, murdered, killed. And on the way, what happens? The risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ shows up to him, appears to him in a vision, knocks Paul off his horse or donkey or whatever he's riding. And what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What? I'm not persecuting you, Jesus. I'm persecuting your church. Exactly. Jesus has so united himself to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this mystical union is what the theologians call it, that when we suffer, when we are tempted, when we are tried, Jesus says that I'm experiencing that. When that happens to you, that, that's happening. It's like it's happening to me. And so we have this high priest, brothers and sisters, that cares for us, that is compassionate, that is moved by our suffering and temptations and trials and losses. So why would you run anywhere else? That's the temptation that these Hebrew Christians are experiencing. Jesus is high and exalted. He's a high priest we can't see or touch. Or speak to and see his face. And so we're going to go elsewhere. We're going to go back to the old covenant priest. Why would you do that when this is your high priest? One who's assumed your nature. One who has experienced all of the weaknesses to the nth degree. You can't even begin to comprehend what he experienced. Maybe a little bit. And he has united himself to you by the Holy Spirit. Why would you go back? And perhaps to apply it to us, why would you go anywhere else? Why would you seek to numb yourself? You can face the pain and the loss and the trials and the temptations and how fallen you are with a high priest like this. You don't have to look anywhere else for refuge. Run to him as the rock of ages. He's always been your help. He always will be your help. But you see how this is only possible because of his humiliation and his condescension, the son of God assuming our nature, taking our weaknesses upon himself and uniting himself to us. 
And this compassionate high priest is now at the right hand of the Father, and we have access to him, and he cares. He's praying for you. He knows exactly what's going on in you right now, right this moment. So why would you go anywhere else when you have one who says, I understand, I get it, and I'm walking with you because that's your great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I told you that was the longest point. Now let's look at the second point. Jesus isn't just a sympathetic high priest. Secondly, he was, in his earthly ministry, a tempted high priest. He was tempted. Look at verse 15 with me again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now again, this really goes back to Jesus' humanity. The fact that he assumed this uh, human nature. He is now able to be tempted. We see that, right? Probably the classic example in the Gospels is right after he's baptized. The Spirit then leads him out into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now we have to make a distinction here though when we talk about how Jesus uh, was tempted as we are. Because there's two categories of temptations, aren't there? There's the category of external temptation. That's mainly the devil and the world. The devil and his demons and the world. Those are our external enemies. And then we have an internal temptation as well as fallen human beings, don't we? What's that internal uh, temptation? That internal enemy is the flesh. Even as Christians, we have that, where, where the, it's like in our hearts, there's this principle that's still unfallen, and so we have these temptations that spring forth from our own hearts. And so it's often hard for us to divvy up, is this coming from uh, the devil and the world, or is this coming from my own sinful heart, because they like create this force that just attacks us like crazy. I don't encourage you to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out which one of those sources is the source of temptation. But we have to make that distinction because here's the reality. Jesus was tempted in every way essential to human nature, that is externally, but he was never tempted internally. You say, well, then how is that true temptation? Well, it's not essential for him to experience internal temptation in order to be your sympathetic high priest. And he couldn't be your high priest if he had internal temptation because then he would be a sinner. Because internal temptation is a sign of what? A disordered, fallen heart. And Jesus assumed an unfallen human nature, so he did not have a disordered or fallen human heart. And so he was tempted externally, but he was not tempted internally. Because that which is of the flesh in this sinful way, not your physical body, but that principle in our heart that that is against God, Jesus couldn't have that in him and be perfect. That which is of the flesh is against the spirit. And so it is sin. And Jesus has none of that in him. Now you say, so then how in the world is this an encouragement to me? That internal temptation seems to be the hardest part of the gig. Well, that's because you haven't really experienced much external temptation. You want to know why you haven't experienced much external temptation? Because you give in really quick. So do I. So do I unfortunately. Jesus never gave in. And so, you know, C.S. Lewis, he was around during, uh, wrote and spoke during the time of World War II. And he has this example in, I think it's 
letters to Malcolm on prayer or something like that. I probably shouldn't say that because I'll get it wrong. But anyway, he says, the person who understands temptation most is not the person who gives in when it first pops up. It's the person who resists it. Or here's the example he uses. You don't understand the strength of the German army by just surrendering. Right? You understand the strength of the German army by fighting against them. By resisting. By taking up arms. And let's see what they got. Let's see if we can take them. That's how you figure out the strength of your opponent. Not by just keeling over. And yet, brothers and sisters, you and I, we keel over so quick, don't we? I'm not saying that there isn't any fruit in any of us that we resist temptation. But by and large, have you ever really, really, for an extended period of time, had a temptation and fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it? Think about Jesus. He never once gave in. And don't think that the temptation just lasted during his time in the wilderness. He was tempted externally his entire life. And he never gave in once. And you can imagine just how annoying that would be to him. How frustrating, potentially, that would be to just constantly have these temptations coming at him. And so here's the point, though. He never gave in, so he understands temptation way better than you do. Lewis actually says the bad person who gives in to temptation doesn't actually understand badness in one sense as much as they could if they resisted it. Because badness then is, the world and the devil are trying all these different tactics to get you to give in to sin. Resist for any period of time and, under, and you'll find out that's exactly the dynamic that's going on here. So Jesus was tempted in the fullest degree in a way that none of us will ever be able to understand. Now, why is this meant to be an encouragement to you? This is meant to be an encouragement to you, first of all, because he's sympathetic. When he sees you tempted, he, he is moved to compassion for you. He cares. He doesn't want you to give in. He's comforting you. He's going to strengthen you from the truth of his word. He's going to help you, and he's able to help you because he's resisted to the maximum level or degree or whatever you want to say. And so he's able to come alongside of you and help you and say two things. For those times that you gave into temptation, you have my track record of never giving into temptation. I've fulfilled all righteousness, so that track record is yours. And then I'm going to come alongside of you, and I want you to grow in this way. And don't, don't you, when you're struggling with something, isn't there something calming and relieving about someone saying, I get it. I understand. Even if nothing changes, just to hear you say that you understand my situation. But Jesus does that and so much more. Because he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. So don't run away from him in your temptation. Right? Isn't that the, oh, I'm so dirty and filthy and I've got to get away from, run away from, going to distract myself or numb myself? No, run to him. Why? Because of Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself, that is Jesus, has suffered when tempted. You don't suffer when you give in to temptation. You suffer when you resist it. And because he has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You and me, brothers and sisters. So don't run from him, run to him. As your forgiveness when you give in to temptation and the one who can show you and strengthen you to grow in character in the midst of temptation and not give in. 
Our great high priest is sympathetic. Our great high priest was tempted. And thirdly, let's look at how our great high priest is sinless. Look again at verse 15 with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't think for a moment that you'd have a more sympathetic high priest if he had sinned so that he could relate with you. Because that high priest can't save you. And so that's why Jesus came and when he's baptized and the the Spirit comes upon him, you remember in the gospel accounts, the, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Spirit drives him out to the wilderness to be tempted. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus in his divinity, his his divine nature, and the Spirit have one will. He has a human will as well. And so Jesus is really driving himself in one sense (laughs) out into the desert to be tempted. Why? He, He doesn't have to be tempted. He's come to be the second Adam, brothers and sisters. He's come to conquer victoriously where Adam failed. Because what did Adam, or what did Satan do? The serpent came to Adam and Eve, twisting the word of God. Did God really say, and then he garbles up what God actually said to try to confuse them. Satan comes to Jesus, the God-man, and does the same thing. And what does Jesus do? He says, ah, you're twisting God's word. Here's what God actually says. And so the word of God uses the word of God to conquer Satan three times so that Satan the third time leaves him alone. The second Adam succeeds where the first Adam failed. Why is he doing this? He doesn't have to do this for himself. He's doing it for us that he might earn that blessed eternal fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us that we lost in the garden. And why is Jesus out in the wilderness for 40 days? It's just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. They were tempted and they sinned. Jesus was tempted and he did not give in. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the true Israel. He's doing all of this as the God-man Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation that we might be reconciled to God. And so if he sinned in any way, shape, or form, that wouldn't make him more sympathetic. That would disqualify him from being the high priest that you need. We needed a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. And this Jesus was. But there's a second reason why Jesus would not be a fit, compassionate high priest for you if he sinned. I'm sure you know this. But if you don't, let me make it clear. Every time you sin, every time I sin, you understand we harden our hearts. We harden our hearts towards God, towards one another. And so it's a supernatural, gracious work of God when His Spirit comes and moves us to repentance because He's softening that hardened heart. And isn't it amazing that He does that for us all the days of our lives? Don't take that for granted, but it's incredible. We need to thank Him for that work of repentance. But here's the reality. When we sin, it hardens our hearts. Think about Jesus, though. He never sinned. So he is compassionate in his human nature to the nth degree. He is perfectly compassionate. 
Now, add on top of that the fact that John 3.34 says that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah 61. That's speaking about Jesus. And so now he has the fruit of the Spirit without measure. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know whether to blame the cold or the braces on that one. He has all of this perfectly in his human unfallen nature and through the special graces of the Holy Spirit that's dwelling upon him. And that would all be lost if he sinned in any way, shape, or form. And so you have this high priest who is sinless, whose compassionate heart has not been tainted one iota by sin. And and this is the one who is interceding for us. This is the one who has passed through the heavens. The one who, who was so compassionate in his life, his earthly ministry, healing people, forgiving sins, forgiving his enemies as they're crucifying him, caring for his mother as he's dying, weeping over friends who experience death, who he's going to raise in just a few seconds. And that Jesus has that human nature at the right hand of the Father And he is still that compassionate, still that sympathetic, moved by all that you experience. And so why would you go anywhere else? Why would you fly for refuge anywhere else? Brothers and sisters, you will not find it. You will find it alone in Christ. So don't believe the voices of your own fleshly heart. Don't believe the voices of the world around us. Don't believe the voice of the devil and his demons. Fly to Christ. Let us hold fast to our compassionate, tried through temptation, and sinless high priest. Why? For he is not ashamed to call us He's holding fast to us. So let us hold fast to him. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you for the gracious provision of the Son, assuming a human nature, that he might be moved by us humanly experiencing a human sympathy that he would not have otherwise and that he is still experiencing that even now for us. We're thankful that he took the fullness of our weaknesses upon himself so that as we struggle against weaknesses, he comes alongside and says, push forth, carry on. I'm with you. I'll strengthen you. I'm carrying you. And he has done that in such a way that he's united himself to us. And he knows what it's like to be tempted better than we do. And he forgives us for the ways that we give in to temptation because he's paid that penalty and he's teaching us how to resist temptation as he did perfectly. And we're thankful that he's able to do all this because he's sinless, perfectly compassionate, a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Oh, Jesus, may we not do you the disservice of not thinking rightly about you because we do it to our own harm What's true of you is true of you, whether we believe it or not, but we want to believe rightly about you because we love you and because we need you so desperately. 
So may we reflect on these, rejoice in these truths, and have communion and fellowship with you, Lord Jesus Christ, and you, Father and Spirit. Thank you for revealing these things to us in your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.